director has to be a singular voice. And the job is to bring together all of these other extraordinary artists who do their jobs beyond a level that you can as, as a director. And you bring them in and you herd them into a singular vision. So they're all bringing their best to tell that one story. And that's what the director does, whether it's the actors, the production designer, the cinematographer, the editor, the composer, the visual effects artist, who no matter who it is, you're honing them all in to a single vision to tell a story. Welcome back to another episode of the Rough Cut Club. I am your host, Joey Nakotra, here with Mr. Shane Reitzammer, my co-host and business partner extraordinaire. Shane, how are you doing today, man? Great, man. Good to be back in the studio with you. I'm loving your shirt. Thanks, man. man. I got this, this. I got this at Alchemy, which I don't think we've actually talked about Alchemy on the show, but I put together with the help of our team, a uh, creative networking event for the city of Dallas that unites artists of all different disciplines to come together to learn and experience each other's art. And one of the artists made this shirt and gave it to me. And so I'm excited to represent today. That's awesome. We're going to have to like shout them out, tag them in the, uh, the shorts. Shout sure. out Tylo May. But. Yeah. but I'm super excited today, man. Yes. You got a heavy hitter, heavy extraordinaire. Hitter. Tell us who's on the show today. Well, our next guest has more accolades than I have time to mention on the show. He is an author, director, producer, editor for a small publication you may have heard called American Cinematographer Magazine <laughs> and recovering director of photography. <laughs> Welcoming to the show for the very first time, a member of the American Society of Cinematographers and now member of the Rough Cut Club podcast, Mr. Jay Holbin. Jay, how are you doing today, my friend? Damn, man. Well, I've hit a milestone in my career. <laughs> I love it, man. We are super pumped to have you and get to chop it up and, and, and chat with you. Uh, I got to say the very first time that I had learned uh, who you were was this last year at NAB. I went and uh, took some of the DP classes and saw your name posted all over uh, the walls and, and making sure that people drop into your classes and, and hear about you. And I was like, man, this J dude is definitely giving a, a ton of just wisdom and experience from his time in his career. And so we are grateful that NAB helped our paths cross. Very cool. I, I am actually grateful for that too. Somebody actually showed up at NAB and paid some attention. So that's, that's right. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So, uh, man, for those that don't know what the ASC is, I want to jump in really quick and give a little bit of background as to you in that in that field. Can you tell me a little bit about what the ASC is and how you became a member? The ASC is the oldest uh, still existing trade out organization in the motion picture industry. So it was formed in 1919 uh, by a collective of cinematographers from each coast, the East Coast and the West Coast, um, as a social club, uh, but also as a means of communication, sharing information and solving problems. Uh, one of the big problems they were looking at back in 1919 was static electricity buildup in the camera from running film 24 frames a second. So it was initially called the Static Club um, but they turned it into the American Society of Cinematographers in January of 1919. So we are over a hundred years old. Wow. It's not a, a union or a guild. It's a trade organization. Um, and it's a social club with a, a major focus on education. So a huge part of the evolution of American Society of Cinematographers was the publication of American Cinematographer magazine which started as a newsletter in 1919 and became a, a monthly publication in 20 or 1921, I think, 1920 or 21. So we have a magazine that's also over a hundred years old, uh, serving as really the publication of record for cinematography in the motion picture industry. The ASC is a, an invite only society. So to become a member, you have to be sponsored by active members of the ASC who represent the elite in cinematography in the world. Uh, there are many, many other uh, cinematography societies that have formed in, in almost every country, um, but the ASC still kind of stands as the benchmark uh, 
representing the cinematographers around the world. And they don't have to be American cinematographers to be a member, uh, but you do have to be uh, invited into the yeah. club. Yeah. That's incredible, man. Well, uh, I got a chance to actually at NAB speak with Sam Nicholson, who is also a member of uh, the ASC. And and I got a chance to talk with him about how he feels, um, you know, being a member has actually impacted his career. And, you know, one of the things that he said was that it didn't actually help get him more jobs in the industry, but that it uh, really got him connected in that social group, which helped take his career to the next level, just being around like-minded individuals. And so I'm curious that now as a member, how do you feel like being a member has impacted your career uh, now that you've been a member? Well, in, in all candor, it, it's made my career as a director a hell of a lot harder. <laughs> um it, it's it, There's a very interesting thing that happens in, in the film industry, especially in Hollywood, that uh, people like to put you in a particular box. Mm. Uh, so for uh, a little over a decade, I worked as a director of photography, and that's how people saw me. And then in 2008, I, I hung up my light meter and I you know, went into producing and directing uh, full time. But because I continue to write books and because uh, I became a, a member of the ASC after I was an active cinematographer, uh, I still continue to send out that message of, I'm in the cinematography world. And I do podcasts like this and, and talk about cinematography. So I don't help myself in my own damn career. <laughs> but, it, you know, one of the reasons why I, I kind of became associated uh, with the ASC 20, almost 27 years ago, uh, it was a fluke that I started writing for the magazine. I was doing research on software to help learn more about cinematography and then thought, hey, this might be a cool story for the magazine. And pitched it to the editor through a friend of mine who was working for the publication at the time and then really just never stopped writing. So it's been this kind of sidetrack. And at that time, I was mostly working as a gaffer, trying to become a DP. And when I made that transition into shooting, suddenly I stopped learning and stealing from all these other DPs that I was working with. And it was really lonely. It was this experience of wait a minute, I'm not able to look at other DPs and see their what their brilliances are and what their mistakes are, and it's all me by myself. But I realized that I had this in with American Cinematographer, and I had an in to be able to get to the top DPs of the world hmm. and to steal from them. So that became like this goal of mine was to be able to get to people like Gordon Willis and Conrad Hall and Haskell Wexler and Darius Kanji and Janusz Kaminski and to be able to sit down with them and pick their brains and, and get all of these techniques. So I became really an avid writer for the publication selfishly to learn as much as I possibly could and, and steal from these masters. And that got me into things like the ASC awards and into being more associated with people who I can consider friends now, like with Russell Carpenter, and, um, small Craig flex. Frazier. Small flex. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Um, Eric Messerschmidt, you know, people who won these gold statues. And so it, it, it's been an, an incredible aspect of my career to be tied in and also to be considered peers with people who I idolize. Uh, so it, it was an incredible, incredible honor for me to be a member of the society. And, and ironically, it happened long after I gave up cinematography and I thought that that dream was gone. You know, I'll, I'll never be a member of this group. And, and I was invited to become an associate member and as the associate levels, it's not like you graduate from associate to, to being an active member. It's a total separate category of individuals who are in support of cinematography. Uh, and at that point, I was already uh, co-chairing the lens committee for the ASC and doing a lot of work with the Motion Imaging Technology Council. Uh, and that's when they invited me to become an associate member. And that, man, getting that little name tag, uh, I, I cried. 
it was a very, very proud moment. Man, that is a, it, it's a beautiful honor and it's something that DPs on the come up look to and aspire to. And uh, it is, is, we are one, just grateful to have uh, an ASC member in our presence and, and know that you have put in a ton of work to help better the cinema, cinema community. Uh, and so, uh, I love the story of just, you know, it happening, all of it kind of happening by chance and, uh, preparation kind of meeting opportunity in that regard. And, um, man, I'm curious though, before we get into the magazine piece, you quit DPing and moved into directing. And I'm curious what kind of led you to hanging up your light meter, so to speak, and pursuing directing. It, it was my career path all along. Uh, so I saw Star Wars when I was five years old and uh, walked out of the theater and told my parents I was going to direct movies. It's hmm. awesome. And my parents looked at me like they do any precocious child. And said, mm -hmm. yeah, okay. <laughs> and I, I spent the rest of my life dedicated to that singular goal. And I started making films at about seven when I discovered my mother's Super 8 camera. And at about nine, 10 years old, I, I realized that in order to be a good director, I really needed to understand everybody else's job. Mm. So I took a step away from that goal to be able to learn every other job on the set. And I started professionally as an actor and then went behind the scenes and then went into writing. Uh, I went first into theater and did everything that I possibly could in theater from literally sweeping floors to stage managing. Uh, and then I moved into Hollywood. And at the time that I moved to Hollywood, I was working, doing a lot of theater jobs as a master electrician and a lighting designer. So I came into Hollywood as an electrician. It made sense to me. And I started kind of building my way up. But all the while, you know, I'm working as an editor and a graphic designer and visual effects and, you know, working as a grip, as an electrician, as a carpenter, as, as a production designer, trying to do everything that I possibly could to learn every role so that I can communicate to people in their own language as a director. And when I finally got into shooting, I found a second passion that I didn't know I had. And I spent more time working primarily as a cinematographer than any other job. Uh, and obviously I can't get away from it. You know, I, I hung up that meter in 2008. That was the last feature film that I shot. And now, you know, a, a decade and a half later, I'm still really involved in the cinematography world because I love it. And there's a, a beautiful synergy between the director and the cinematographer. It's one of the closest, most important bonds uh, on a set. So, those skills really help me as a director uh, to be able to to tell stories. So I, I hung up the meter pursuing my life goal. Uh, and at that time, I thought it was it was the right time for me. I had a feature documentary in the works. I had just won awards with shorts. I had two scripts that were ready to go. And I said, OK, now I'm making the transition. And um, all of those projects fell apart uh, and it, it was a very difficult transition. Mm. Still working on it. <laughs> <laughs> I love though you, you know, it seems to be a common thread with a lot of people that we've had on this show of learning the importance of all the different roles in set to make sure that you can excel in your role and have a better understanding of what each person on a production is doing. And you can then do a better job in your craft uh, when you keep, you know, what they have to do in the forefront of your consideration. And, and so I love that you have done all the different roles on set, uh, to climb your way up to the director's seat. But now as a director, you're able to have an appreciation and an understanding of what every single person does in a production. Well, and I think that's so key for directors. We, we just had Adam Drake on uh, a couple of episodes ago, a assistant director and he, man, you and him saying the same thing, speak the same language mm -hmm. of all the different departments. And it makes the process, it makes the set so much better. It makes the yeah. storytelling so much better because you do have experience in all those different roles. Joey and I talk about that all the time. Our favorite, you know, DPs are people that 
have editing backgrounds, you know, especially corporate stuff where it's run and gun, whatever it is, they know how to shoot for the edit, you know, and it's just basic stuff like that. Being able to cross over and understand other people's departments is so key, I think, in in critical storytelling. Yeah. And and you've also made a huge leap in, in turning down the, you know, cinematography dream to pursue the directing thing like that has to be a terrifying you know career jump to then start turning down uh you know dp roles to pursue directing roles and the transition has to be tough so i admire you know the pursuit of keeping the dream on the forefront man that's incredible and that's very true every time there's a transition of job it's starting from scratch yeah Mm. Uh, and it's a rebrand yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's a, it's a rebrand. Um, it, and you know, the one of the ways that I was able to make the transition, and I really figured this out when I was gaffing, because nobody was giving me a chance to shoot. You know, I'm, I'm trying to do as many small projects, and you know, of course, this is back pre-digital days. So, you know, trying to get, we got a camera for the weekend. Oh, I have some short ends. So, okay, we're gonna shoot something. Uh, but what I realized my best skill was, was that I could produce. Mm. So I wound up producing projects so that I could shoot them and build my DP reel. So the ability to do those other jobs afforded me the chance to, to move on. Mm. Um, I love that. But every time it is, it's a complete start from scratch. You got to stop taking the calls. You, you know, those calls come in. Hey, hey, we got a, a show. We would love to use shoot. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't shoot anymore. Mm. But I can recommend these people. And it's painful, and it, and it hurts the income, and it hurts the ego. Um, but it's the only way to break out of those boxes um, and move on. Yeah, and I think there's come a point in every one of our artistic careers where we're trying to transition from the threshold where we're currently at into the next chapter where we're no longer, you know, a PA, we are a grip or we are a first AD or or a second, you know, AD or yeah, moving from a camera operator to uh, you know, a DP or AC, you know, any of these different roles. And so uh, there there comes a point in time when all of us have to make a transition. So I think it's really cool to hear your journey and how you were able to navigate that and do that. Um, and, and one of those components that you picked up was you're now an editor for American Cinematographer. And, and that's a whole other different, um, you know, I don't want to call it a box, but that's another different thing that you had to build from scratch and you're pursuing both at the same time. Uh, And I have personally, as a cinematographer myself, taken a lot from that magazine and have been able to grow in my craft because of all of the stories that uh, you guys are able to help cultivate and share with us. So I'm curious in your own words, how you view the American Cinematographer magazine as a tool that other cinematographers can learn and grow from. It's invaluable. Mm. It's beyond invaluable. And, and nearly, not just cinematographers, nearly every filmmaker of any level I've ever encountered, from Steven Spielberg to you know brand new uh, up-and-coming directors, they all reference American Cinematographer. And I was just having this conversation that, you know, the very first issue I ever had in my hands, I was 10 years old and Ghostbusters was on the cover. And I remember getting this thing and flipping through it and just being in awe because it wasn't, you know, uh, I'm really dating myself and, and probably half of your, your listeners are going to have a clue. What we'll I'm bleep it about, out for it you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It wasn't Starlog and it wasn't People Magazine or, or Us Magazine. You know, these things that I, I kind of voraciously ate up at the time because it was the only thing that talked about movies. These are pre-internet days. Mm. It, it, it was real. I mean, these were real filmmakers and those were real cameras and, and they were talking about real things that I had no idea what any of it meant. And it was extraordinary. But it was the first step into touching real Hollywood. Mm. And so, you know, I I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and it was rare to find American cinematographer on the newsstand. But when I did, man, I snagged it and it just devoured it. So when I came to Hollywood, what actually uh, 
Christopher Probst, ASC, who's a dear friend, uh, he and I met in Scottsdale, Arizona. And one of the first things that we did was we took a trip together to LA to come out to the pre-NAB, which was Showbiz Expo at the time. And in that trip, we ambushed the ASC clubhouse. We just, the gate was broke. We just walked right up to the front door, knocked on the front door, and they let these two kids in. Uh, and the gentleman who let us in was William Fraker, ASC, who was a legend. And Billy Fraker walked us around the clubhouse and showed us around and, and kind of walked us in open arms. And three years later, when we both moved to L.A., Chris continued to ambush the clubhouse and wouldn't leave. So basically, they started putting him to work and started, you know, Put these shelves together, kid. Clean out this room. <laughs> and he started looking at the proofs of the magazine and was like, you know what? I can kind of help edit some of this. And so they gave him some test pieces to edit. And he started helping with that. And then mm. they started giving him some assignments to write. So he stumbled into writing for the magazine. He's the one that I funneled through with my story on software uh, and just never left. But it would... It's been a real source of pride and honor for me to be part of this publication. You know, I just, um, I, I was able to do an interview with Gareth Edwards, uh, director of the creator and Rogue One, Godzilla mm. and Monsters. We talked about the mutual thing of his love for American cinematographer and what that meant to him coming up. And I, we hear it from every filmmaker. We hear it from David Fincher and, uh, uh like I said, Spielberg and, and Jim Cameron and all of these, even non-cinematographers who revere this publication. So it's it's a real source of honor for me to be part of it and to help new generations discover this industry and learn. I I absolutely love that insight of hey, let's go. Can we? You and I go show no, up literally. on the doorstep. You're giving us <laughs> ideas, Jay. <laughs> You're like, oh no, no, we're no, going to tell, tell him Jay sent us. <laughs> no, but I got to say, you know. Uh, I had a mentor, uh, or I believe it was an aunt or uncle that subscribed me to American Cinematographer, and the magazine was just my. You know, I I grew up wanting to make films, and and I got the magazine, and it was like, I mean, I was the kid that loved the DVDs with the like the behind the scenes featurettes, right? Well, this is on. I mean, this is the real deal, like you said. Like these are untouchable in our minds, like cinematographers, but we're getting to hear you know, their techniques and their stories and how they how they made this all come to life and blew my mind. And I one of my favorite things in my man cave slash gear area where I have all my equipment is I've got like some very old 1971 uh, issues of the, uh, the magazine all displayed. And I just love that. And then I gave Joey uh, a stack of the ones that, you know, years, because I don't, I don't shoot as much anymore, and and he's been eating it up, man. So we're grateful for all that y'all do at the magazine Absolutely. because it does. It's just an education tool that you can't. I, I feel like you can't get on the internet. No. You know, you've got to have it through the magazine, and you've got to uh, hear it from these pros and their firsthand uh, experiences of how they make these pictures yeah. come to life. Well, and I can even attest too to the, you know, Jay talking about that moment where you open it up and you're just like, whoa, like I don't understand any of what they're talking about, but I'm intrigued. I, when, uh, I think the second issue this year came out with James Cameron's way of the water, like breakdown, I read that and I didn't know what half of the gear was more than half of the gear was that he used to make that movie. And it humbled me because I was like, I don't know what any of this tech is. And it's, it almost in, is intimidating, but you go, wow, like I am getting an inside insider's knowledge on how James Cameron made one of the most technically challenging movies of all time and getting to hear, you know, a uh, uh, firsthand account of the new tech that was invented in the, the, techniques that he used to pull this movie off and it was so profound to me i loved it no so man uh on the note of um reading publications mm. you came out with a book called the cine lens manual and i was wondering if you could tell us a little about it and what inspired you to write it 
Oh man, what inspired me to write it? Uh, midlife crisis. <laughs> um, some people buy uh, Ferraris. Uh, I, I wrote a book. Um, no, re really, uh, in, in the Reader's Digest version, the short version, what inspired uh, me to do this book, um, I was teaching a number of lectures that were sponsored by Panavision uh, to groups of filmmakers, mostly cinematography-centric, but really all about all sorts of topics. And I was asked to do a, a lecture on lenses. And the lectures were held at Panavision Hollywood. And so I put together you know, my little spiel on lenses and focal lengths and you know these are this is what a t-stop and an f-stop is and I was you know proud of my little introductory piece that I did and uh, at the end of it a gentleman came up to me and said yeah, it was that was really nice I really really enjoyed that I said thank you and he said my name is Guy McVicker and I'm the head of optics for Panavision Hollywood mm, wow I said, oh wow wow okay I'm really surprised we've never met before very cool it's an honor and he said do you you want to come listen to the, the spiel that I usually give cinematographers? I was like, yeah, absolutely. And I called up my buddy, Chris, and I said, hey, I'm going to go to Panavision and, and hear this thing. Do you want to come? And he's like, yeah, I do. Sure. So we went and spent, I don't know, four hours that day with Guy. And within the first 15 minutes, he, he melted our brains. Mm. I mean, between us at that time, you know, you've got 20 years of professional experience as cinematographers, and we realized we knew nothing wow. about lenses. Absolutely nothing. Wow. And I've, I've confessed to this before, but prior to that moment with Guy, because, you know, most of my career was shooting 35-millimeter film and most of it was Panavision, my lens knowledge was normal speeds, super speeds, ultra speeds and primos. And that was it. Those are the options you had. And it really was budget dependent. It was like, okay, I want, oh, can't afford the primos. So we're, guess we're going to be on ultra speeds. Wow. Can't afford those. I guess we're on normal speeds for this job. Oh my God. <laughs> and that was my experience. And guy showed us there was a whole nother world. Mm. And that, uh, inspired us to come back to Panavision. We spent two days there and we tested every 50 millimeter lens they had in stock. And then we went to another rental house in Los Angeles called Camtech and we tested every 50 millimeter lens that they had in stock. And I took all of these and I took still images from them and put them all in a, a single page, single graphic basically, that Chris then called the Denny's menu because he looked at it like like a restaurant menu and ordering of oh, this is what I want for my next job. I want so this awesome. look. What is that? Oh, it's a Canon K35. Mm. Cool. So it was this whole idea of there are individual styles and characters, even within all the same focal length. And that spun Chris off into wanting to buy lenses and rehouse and collect and find all of these unique lenses. And it spun me off into wanting to learn why. Mm. Why were they different? Mm. Because at the time I was teaching a lot and I was writing for the magazine. And so I wanted to be able to explain to people why these lenses look different. And then that spun me off into a huge amount of research and reading uh, and a deep frustration for the lack of information mm. and the massive amount of misinformation. Like every time I would find something new, I would find contradiction to it and what was right and what was true. And so at that point, I had already put out two books and I thought, OK, this might be my third. I need to learn about lenses and I need to write this book. And I was watching what Chris was doing, which was rehousing lenses and buying vintage lenses and, and having a whole expertise that I was not touching on. And I had the academic research side. And so I said, do you want to do a book together? And he was like, yeah, sure. Why not? I sent him this outline and then he made major edits and major additions and he sent it back to me. And then I made edits and additions. And I sent it back to him and we did like six versions of this outline in a day and decided, okay, we're going to write this book. And I thought it'll take a, a year or two. And it took us eight years. Wow. Mm. It took us eight years to put it together because we had to learn everything from scratch to 
I can't, we're not optical designers, but we had to learn and understand optical design and optomechanical design and the foundations of how lenses work and, and teach myself physics to be able to explain this to somebody else. And I, I'm a college dropout. You know, I, I, I didn't have college physics courses or high school physics courses. So it was a huge learning curve and a huge mandate for me was to be able to explain all of this in layman's terms, mm. without utilizing formulas or calculus, so that we made this information accessible to everyone. Uh, so really long story, why did we write the book? Uh, because I was old enough going through midlife crisis and I needed something. Uh, dude, I am just blown away by the passion and dedication to the eight year trek of putting together all of that research and information and making it in in a digestible, uh, just, you know, bite-sized piece of information that someone can go and look through and pull from like a Denny's menu. Like, I love that just analogy. And it, it's just such a helpful resource to DPs. And so I, as someone who has literally written the book on lenses, how do you go about choosing a lens for your project with all of this knowledge um, on, on what the nuances of each lens characteristics are? Well, I leave it up to my cinematographer. Sure. Uh, there you go. They and, tell and them the, the cinematographer is using the book. I was going to say, menu. just reference the Cine no, Lens Manual. Seriously, that book right. just blew my mind. You know, the emoji with like the head explosion. Uh, That's what I feel <laughs> like right now. Because again, I don't, I don't shoot. But the way you explain that whole process of how that book came together, like I'm going to get online and buy that book because I want to read it now. You made it sound so interesting. That's great. The layman terms. I think a lot of times when I was intimidated with cinematography is the tech side of it. Like you're saying, you know, all the formulas and understanding everything behind the, the, uh, the tech. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's awesome. And yeah, yeah. Maybe, uh, Joey, uh, you know, stocking stuffer for you for Christmas. Absolutely. Huh? Absolutely. Um, man, I'm curious, do you have like a favorite go-to lens as you know, through your studies and whatnot? Have you found, have you come across one that you call your, your go-to? No, not at all. Uh, in fact, not only sort of as an occupational aspect, uh, but as a personal aspect, I stay very agnostic. Mm. Uh, and, and you asked about, you know, as a little flip in, in my response to your previous question, like how do I choose a lens for a project? Uh, it's always sort of an open door. Mm. I have as a director, I have a particular image about how things are gonna look or how I want things to look. And I generally communicate that through images with a cinematographer. So utilizing something today like Shot Deck mm. to be able to go through Shot Deck and pull 50 images of this is, this is what I see, this is what I want. So what is that? What makes that image something that speaks to me? Well, it's really the way that the fall off happens or it's the way that the bouquet is happening. Or, or it's the, the rendering of skin tones or the uh, loss of, of field curvature or in, imposition of field curvature, I should say, you know, that's adding character to this. So let's look at lenses that are like that and let's test those and then see what we get. Now, I've also kind of in recent projects had the complete opposite where I've been doing projects for lens companies. And so we get a series of lenses and then we have to look at them and say, okay, what are the characters of these lenses? What are the properties of these lenses? What kind of, oh, what kind of cool story can I tell with this? Oh man, okay. So this is really into, you know, really distorted, really kind of soft imagery. Let's do something that's sort of real claustrophobic and kind of in your face and really exploit that razor thin depth of field of a T11 lens. And, and so I'm kind of reverse engineering and I'm telling stories based on the characteristics of lenses, but generally it's the other way around. Mm. Mm. So, and I'm also, because of my background, incredibly careful to not step on the toes of, of my creative collaborators, especially a cinematographer. Mm. So I, I'm not dictating, hey, we have to use this because this is what I want. I'm saying, this is the look I want to get. Let's look at options and explore and you help me decide what we're going to choose. Sorry, I love that previs just technique of working backwards from the lens and the characteristics that 
uh, a lens has and then building, you know, different shot concepts into your story from it. There was a, a lens, uh, the Helios 44 um, millimeter, which is just, it has such a, you can spot it and know that picture was shot on that lens because it has such a unique look. And I've, uh, you know, I've been wanting to build a story around that lens for a long time. And I love just the idea of working backwards from the lens to help tell your story. So that's really awesome, man. I, I do a fair amount of that, that sort of reverse engineering and, and coming up with creative to serve uh, incredibly technical needs. It's kind of a niche of mine. I love that, man. Before we get off the topic of books, you have another book that is about to come out called The Shot Craft Book. Can you please tell us a little bit about this? I would love to tell you a little bit about this. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, promote uh, and, and push my uh, new book. Um, since 2017, I have had the extraordinary honor of offering a, a monthly column an American cinematographer that is focused on education. It's focused on the fundamentals of cinematography and filmmaking called Shotcraft. Uh, and my next book is a compilation of most of the first five years of this column uh, curated and categorized into uh, a single source reference. I, I'm, I was getting so many comments from people that they were cutting out uh, the Shotcraft articles and, and putting them into folders so that they could collect them. And wouldn't it be amazing to have a, a single source? Like, well, yeah, okay, we can put that together. So that's about to come out uh, within a, a month or so uh, is this collection of these articles. Very similar to my second book, which was Behind the Lens, which was a collection of articles that I did for uh, digital video and videography and government video and some American cinematography pieces back then. But I'm really excited for it. Uh, and it will, it'll be out, uh, in people's hands very soon. And, and how can, how can filmmakers tangibly use this book to help elevate and take their films to the next level? Well, every damn chapter is going to help them do that. <laughs> uh, every damn story is, is, is practical, usable information. And that's a huge part of what I put into the Shotcraft columns is I want to learn from the majority of them. So I take subjects, even the, that I know intimately, like a polarizer filter. And so I will do deep dive into polarizers so that I learn something and then can pass it along to somebody else. And I try to do that with every story that I do. So I get, you know, new filmmakers coming up to me and, and telling me how much they love Shotcraft. And I get veteran cinematographers who come up to me and say it's one of the first sections of the magazine that they read. Mm. So there's always something in there for people to either as a refresher or as another way of looking at things or as a total primer on a particular subject. Uh, so trying not to be, you know, all hubris aside, hopefully every single section of that will be something that people can use to make their work better. And, and, and just so that everyone has a full understanding of what those sections look like, can you explain what the shot craft sections, you know, what it, what it, what each one of them is like? Well, each one of them is tackling a, a generally a singular subject, like say polarizer filters. Uh, and it's uh, a primer into what is a polarizer, how is it made, how does it work, how do you utilize it, what are the benefits of it, what are the problems of it. Um, and I do that for, for cameras and lenses and filmmaking techniques, uh, composition. Uh, there's a massive section of the book that's dedicated to lighting, lighting techniques, lighting fixtures, understanding better about uh, diffusion materials and, and exposure and, and uh, what tools are best for what situation. Um, it's mostly focused, of course, at cinematographers, but uh, camera assistants and directors and savvy producers will uh, benefit from uh, reading this material. Going back to speaking the same language of every department. Yeah, I see the value in that. This is going to be required reading at a Cinema Story. This is <laughs> a good right. one. Yeah. <laughs> Homework for all Looking of our contractors. To it. And it comes out, you said, October, November? 
ish. Uh, it, it'll be it's it all goes well. It'll be out before October. Okay, awesome. fantastic. Man. We'll be watching for it. Yeah, that's great. Fantastic, man. Well, one of the other things too that um, you had kind of mentioned to us offline is that you had recently done a virtual production LED wall test of thirty-five millimeter film uh, for American cinematographer. Uh, I'm curious what some of your findings were from that shoot. Uh, as someone who is about to start shooting in virtual uh, production studios uh, and on LED volume walls, I'm curious what you learned from that uh, production and that test. Well, you're going to have to read about it. <laughs> <laughs> Soft sell right there. <laughs> you're going to have to subscribe to American Cinematographer Magazine. And, no. um, uh, multiple discoveries in that the, the the real takeaway is that film works hmm. right it works in the virtual environment uh, there are tools that exist to sync the camera uh, technically uh, to the refresh rate of the wall uh, we wound up utilizing uh, because of what the test that we were doing didn't require any sync sound we utilized an older camera uh, an aeroflex 435 but the sync tool uh, was very simple. It was a, a video film sync tool that we had used for years to just be able to sync to regular monitors when we shoot. There are other tools that exist to sync more high-end cameras like the Arri LT or ST or the 535. Um, they're a little bit more finicky in the way that they work, but we know this works. Film can work with the LED wall and it works. There's some interesting benefits to it. Uh, the problems of moray that exist when you shoot with a digital sensor on an LED wall, moray happens because of a confluence of two different harmonic signals from isotropic sampling. It's a lot of words I just threw out there. I was techie. Basically because, yeah, I'm, I was geeking out for a second. Uh, <laughs> because you have a fixed sample pattern of a digital sensor in a camera, and a fixed projection system of the pixel pattern of the LED wall, those two fixed patterns together confuse each other at a certain point and you end up with moray aliasing in your image. Mm. When you introduce film into that environment, film has an anisotropic sampling, an organic sampling. Every frame of film is a different pattern of crystal halide grains. So there is no moray with film. It doesn't exist, which means that you can get focus closer to the physical wall than you can in the digital world. Now, we still can't focus directly on the wall because that renders the pixel pattern, which will create moray out of monitors or digital projection later. But we can get a lot closer, which gives us a little bit more creative freedom within smaller volumes or where our talent is placed within an LED wall volume. Man, I love that. That is. There are. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to keep going. So it's a. How <laughs> long you want to go on this particular? No, topic. I, I love it, man. Because, like I had mentioned, I'm about to go and shoot uh, on on a volume stage for my first time, and so uh, this is all really great information to know. And while I'm not shooting film, it is good to know how that it work, how it works differently from a digital sensor, and so. Uh, on that vein, for the newbie DP who is shooting in a volume studio for the first time, uh, I guess, you know, even while you are a director, you do have a very technical background of how it works. Do you have any advice for not only me, but other DPs who are shooting in a volume studio? And, you know, there's not a lot of opportunity to learn uh, not on the job. And so any advice that you have for filmmakers, uh, whether they're, whether that's in the directing vein or the cinematography vein for how to approach shooting in a volume studio for the first time. One of the big things is that you still have to light just as much as you do in a regular environment, not relying on the led walls as your lighting is, is a really important lesson to learn. Most of these led panels do not have the color fidelity that our motion picture lighting fixtures do. So if you're utilizing the walls, you're color biasing and you're getting non-true colors out of your subjects. Mm. So you still have to bring in the same amount of light that you normally would. 
matching those environments becomes really important. Contrast ratio is, is huge between matching the LED wall and your practical subject to make it blend seamlessly. Mm. One of the things that, that I've discovered, uh, especially when dealing with daytime uh, scenes, is to make sure that you let that wall go a little uncontrolled and a little overexposed because it's too easy to be perfect. It's too easy to get the perfect sunset and the perfect exposure, and then that doesn't feel real. Mm. So allow yourself to be a little bit imperfect, to let things like, like the LED wall go a little hot, and that feels more real to us in an environment. That's a good pro tip for sure. I've never actually considered that at all. So that's really, that's a ninja tactic for sure. Contrast you got to watch out for um, and the blending of practical and virtual. Mm. So there's amazing things that we can do with taking a, a virtual prop or a virtual piece of set deck scan or, or real one, scanning it and putting it in the virtual world, right? Seamless. But a real problem happens like we want virtual practical floor. Okay, so the example that I give is, let's say we're in snow. So the art department brings in fake snow, we lay it down on the floor, and then we have virtual snow in the background and we wanna blend these two seamlessly. But the problem is, as the real snow gets closer to the LED walls, it's now being lit from the image off the LED wall. So that snow in the LED world is white, but the light coming off of it is blue. Mm. So now as our snow gets closer to the wall, it turns blue. Mm. And wow. then there's a transition where now it's white in the virtual world. So your uh, disguise or Unreal or Megapixel or whoever, whatever system you're using, those engineers have to create color gradients on the wall to blend practical and real world and make that seamless. And that can take a lot of time. It can be really hard to finesse that. So that's where you wanna work with your art department to say, okay, we want a little bit of a, a, a raise up uh, of a lip on our practical set so that we don't see this transition and I can put some gap in between the LED wall and my practical set to avoid these transitions. or we need to desaturate the physical color of our set as it gets closer to the wall so that when it gets biased by the wall, uh, those colors match a little bit better. The other thing that I'll, I'll throw out is that, especially since we just talked about lenses, the more aberrant a lens is, especially the more spherical aberration it has, the greater chance you stay away from more. The more contrast and sharper that lens is, the more chance you're going to hit that moiré sooner uh, and end up with problems. So move your talent and subject away from the wall as much as you can. Uh, but also, the more character that's in your lens, the more it helps. Man, that is just such profound wisdom. And, and that's really the magic of being a DP in a volume studio is knowing how to manipulate the nuances of the practical light versus the light that's coming off the wall and then balance the overhead uh, light off camera um, or, or just the light, uh, you know, lighting your talent. And so that is just, I'm not going to lie. You make it sound pretty intimidating when you, <laughs> when uh, you give uh, that level of expertise. That's okay. Man. We recorded this. So that's we right. have the masterclass now. Right. We'll be watching this over and over again before we go uh, do our test shoot. So awesome. At least we got some test prep uh, to, to work on. That's right. For the volume. Yep. Coming up. Well, I would be I would be remiss if I did not talk about you as a director. And so, man, I want to talk about some of the projects that you have directed. Um, and, and one of the ones that I believe you have coming up, uh, correct me if I'm wrong in how you pronounce it, but it's STEM 201. Is that correct? We call it the STEM 2. STEM 2. Well, tell me a little bit yeah. about the STEM 2. Uh, so uh, I talked a little bit earlier about sort of my niche is uh, taking something extraordinarily technical and, and finding the creative in it. Um, in 2000, the early 2000s, 2003, uh, we were in the motion picture industry transitioning to digital projectors and theaters. 
And these companies that were manufacturing these projectors needed to be able to know that the technology they were creating would represent the image the way it was supposed to be. So the ASC created uh, a short piece of material, 17 minutes of material, uh, shot by Alan Davio, ASC, and then directed by Dante Spinante, ASC. Um, that was intended for these production companies to utilize to watch and see, hey, our, this okay, our, our stuff is working, or no, it's not working. And to be able to show cinematographers so that they could look at it and, and know this material and say, no, that's not the way those whites are supposed to look, or, or no, your highlights are not rolling off the way that they're supposed to. So the STEM material, as it was called, the standard evaluation material, was generated in 2003 by the ASC. In the late 2010s, uh, we as a society, and especially the Motion Imaging Technology Council, which is the technological wing of the ASC, realized that there was all sorts of new innovation in exhibition from laser systems to emissive screen, LED screens, to high dynamic range, to high frame rate, none of which is addressed in the original STEM material. So we realized that we needed to make the STEM 2.0. And to do that, we formed a committee within a technology council where we brought together cinematographers, colorists, uh, technologists, manufacturers, brought them all together, sat them down and said, okay, what do we need technically to break all of these systems that are coming out and make sure that they are meeting specifications? And we came up with this huge list of everything that had to be put in there. You know, incredible contrast range, fast movement, uh, really saturated colors that would break color uh, spectrum, really fine resolution details. And, and all of this got put into a list. And then it got handed to me. And I wind up writing a creative story. The original stem was really just a recreation of the wedding scene from The Godfather. But companies that show this material want a slice out of a Hollywood movie. They want a scene from a Marvel movie mm. to show their projector off, right? But they can't take Disney material and show it to Universal mm. or take Paramount material and, and show it to Sony. There's all these rights encumbered. So as the ASC, we create a piece of Hollywood fun entertainment, very, very technically crafted so that the industry can use it freely to evaluate their technology. And that became the STEM 2, which is uh, creatively called The Mission. It's a science fiction short film about a, a team of ragtag scientists who are looking for a particular uh, element that they find in, in a natural rock formation, and they're being chased by the bad guys uh, to also stop them. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a Hollywood fun story, uh, but very, very meticulously designed to evaluate and break all of our current exhibition systems. Man, that is just so, I, I just love your dedication to giving back education to the filmmaking community. And it seems like almost all of the projects that you have a hand in is you giving back to the community to help the next guy coming up. And so I'm just, one, we're grateful to have uh, someone like you who's giving back and trying to pave the way for the next generation. And I'm curious, you know, as a director, what advice you have for other up and coming directors who are trying to set themselves apart in the industry and make a name for themselves? What advice do you can you give to the director who is trying to come up to be successful on their journey? I, I wish somebody would give me that particular piece of advice myself. Too. <laughs> um, I, I would say that probably the, the best thing that I learned uh, is that as a director, you have to direct. So you have to be creative. And a big portion of my career is no one is giving me the opportunity. No one is handing it to me. So I have to make my own opportunities. Mm. And again, that's why I became a, a producer. Um, mm. it, it, it's something that I, I do well, but it's not part of the business that I really love. I do it as a means to an end. Mm. I produce projects so that I can direct them and, and tell stories and make creative projects. 
I also, I, I hit this evolution in my career that when I was coming up, short films were uh, the things that you did to get in. Those are, you know, you did short films so that you could break in and make feature films. And that was this mentality that I had for the longest time. So I did a ton of short films, broke in, became a professional director, and then, you know, left them in the rearview mirror. And I kind of missed them. And I'm a, I don't know if you can really tell behind me, uh, this, this whole bookshelf behind me is Stephen King. Wow. I'm a huge Stephen King fan. And I looked at King as, as he's one of the most prolific and successful novelists of, of our time. But yet he still writes short stories. And he puts together short story compilations. Why? Because they're a little nugget and they're a total different muscle that you exercise and a total different art form. Hmm. And so I've wound up later in my career sort of grasping onto that and say, hey, there's nothing wrong with making shorts. And I freaking love it. So I've kind of gone back to playing in that world a little bit, and I would definitely recommend that to other filmmakers. Like, don't dismiss this as a discarded or obsolete art form. It's still a great way to tell stories, and it's a great way to show your skills. I've also I've given the advice to so many actors and so many cinematographers and other directors that you have to put on your reel the material that you want to be hired to make. Hmm. So if you're a cinematographer that wants to shoot car spots, you better damn well have car spots on your reel, which means you better be going out and shooting those spec commercials mm -hmm. and shooting that material yourself because nobody's going to hire you to shoot a BMW spot if you don't already have it. Mm. So as a director, if you want to be doing sci-fi or you want to be doing fantasy or you want to be doing dramas or you want to be doing comedies, then make those films as shorts or as scenes and put them on your reel so that people can see that you can do that. Mm. Dude, that is so, so true. And I, we actually just got, I would say this year, uh, started really prioritizing spec work in and making it a pillar of our business because of the significance that it has on the type of jobs that you get hired for. And so I love that piece of advice for up and coming directors. Um, man, I wanna be respectful of time. Uh, I got one last question for you and it's really just fishing for a social media soundbite. But <laughs> what makes somebody a good director? To be a good director, you have to be a good storyteller. And that's what it comes down to. You have to engage an audience on an emotional and visceral level with the story that you want to tell. And that comes down to the director and the director's vision. A director has to be a singular voice. And the job is to bring together all of these other extraordinary artists who do their jobs beyond a level that you can as, as a director. And you bring them in and you herd them into a singular vision. So they're all bringing their best to tell that one story. And that's what the director does, whether it's the actors, the production designer, the cinematographer, the editor, the composer, the visual effects artist, who no matter who it is, you're honing them all in to a single vision to tell a story. Gosh. And I'll give you a little anecdote because I, I kind of love this story. In my past working in theater, uh, I, I had a, a, a run for a little bit working as a master flyman. And I got to work on two different shows back to back that were both five character dramas with two incredible casts. I mean, they, they were the best of, of the best that we had in Arizona at the time. Two incredible scripts. And one was a terrible show and the other was brilliant and the whole thing was the director mm. you had all these wonderful components but in one you had five different actors doing five different shows because they had no real direction and they had no singular vision and in the other show it was five actors doing one show mm. and man that thing was awesome and that was a huge revelation for me, even understanding what a director does and directing on my own. That was like, here you go. Here's the job. You got to bring everybody together and herd them 
into that single corral and tell that story. Well, I think you got your sound bite, and I just got <laughs> super inspired as well. So, uh, man, Jay, that is that's great. That's definitely hitting all the alarm bells in my mind to level up my game. That's right. As I continue my tiny journey into directing and producing. <laughs> uh, I love that, man. Thanks for sharing. Dude, yes. Thank you for taking us to Director Film School 101. Yeah. And uh, man, we want to be respectful of your time. Before we get you out of here, we got five questions that we like to ask each of our guests. So my first question for you is if you could go back and do it all differently, what is one thing that you would change in your career? I would start directing a lot sooner. Hmm. Uh, so the you know the journey of my path was getting all of these other jobs and then i eventually got to a point where i felt i was ready and you know i could have been directing for decades prior to that still learning everything else but uh, mm -hmm. that's one big wish that i wish i would have done was really focus on that sooner love it man i love it what is one thing that excites you most about the current film industry or market i i think the options that we have uh, mm -hmm. for telling stories. Um, and I, I'd like to see things getting away from the massive tentpole Hollywood films into a lot more unique visions and a lot more unique stories uh, and having the venues to exhibit those stories is, is exciting. Mm, fantastic, man. What is one piece of advice that you can give to filmmakers trying to grow in their craft or their business? Read, read everything you possibly can. Uh, it's all about learning mm. uh, and then experiment and then learn and then experiment. And then if you get the opportunity, go watch somebody who's better than you, do your job and you will learn in quantum leaps from that. Uh, but it's, you cannot stop learning and you cannot stop pushing yourself. When you do, that's when you retire. Yep. Mm. I love it, man. It's a roadmap to success right there. Forever a student of the game. You always got to be learning, man. Um, where are we as an industry headed in filmmaking and what should we be focusing on? We're headed straight on the highway to hell right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh. um, well, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, um, but I think that we are headed to a revolution of, of sorts. Mm. Um, and it, it might be because of the strikes that we're dealing with right now. Um, I, I'm hoping that it ends in a adjustment and a revamp to the current corporate run major studios that we have um, back into an idea of more artist run mm. uh, filmmaking venues. Uh, I think that that has been one of the things that has hurt our industry the most is that we are run by corporations and, and not artists. That's kind of my hope of where we go when we come out of this. I don't know if that's realistically going to happen or not. Because at the end of the day, it's still a business. Mm -hmm. And we still have to be funded in this business. And that primary funding is coming from major corporations, most of whom are just dabbling in this business and just playing in it. Uh, but we're able to do what we do because we can afford to do that. So there, there's this real dichotomy that we always have to remember. This is show business. Mm. Uh, but it would be great if it could be run by creatives instead of corporations that don't understand what we do. Mm. Yeah, so well that, said. Yep, very well said. Um, my last question for you, Jay, and then we'll get you out of here. Who is one filmmaker that you admire and why? <laughs> oh man you gotta um, pick so one I, yeah right uh, i have i have long been a disciple of, of steven spielberg mm. um and i think much of my storytelling um tendencies uh, are modeled on spielberg which is of course is a, a model of, of john ford and alfred hitchcock and mm. uh martin scorsese and, and uh, all the filmmakers who came before him that inspired him and then he inspires uh, the generation. But I, uh, you know, especially his earlier films, I'm a huge student of them. I kind of consider uh, those the pinnacle of my religion of cinema. You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws, Close Encounters, mm -hmm. 
E.T., Empire of the Sun, you know, these films inform the way that I tell stories and that I want to engage audiences. Hmm. I, I remember in, in my very, very short stint in film school before I, I left, um, my professor accused me of, of being a commercial filmmaker. And I turned that around and said, no, that, that's a badge of honor. Uh, I absolutely unabashedly am a commercial filmmaker. I want to engage an audience and the largest audience and I want them to enjoy the experience, no matter what it is, being afraid, being angry, being sad. Uh, I want them to walk away having been fulfilled by that experience. And I want the biggest damn audience that I possibly can have. So, yeah, uh, I would much rather be Steven Spielberg than Jim Jarmusch. Yep. Mm. Man, Jay, you are just a wealth of knowledge and I could simply talk to you for hours. You have been such an amazing guest on our show and we are honored to have had you just connect and chat for an hour, man. Thank you so much for your continual giving back to the filmmaking community, pouring out the education you've learned in your career for us to learn and grow from in our crafts. And we are super excited to not only get the Cine Lens Manual, but also the Shot Craft book when it comes out. And so we are super, super looking forward to that, man. Thank you for being a guest on our show. Thank you to both of you. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Has been fun. Well, thank you. If you are still with us, thank you for tuning in on this episode. It has been quite an episode and we will catch you on the next one. Here. Yeah. Like a rough cut club. Yeah. I got you. I got you on the end there, brother. <laughs> there it is.